0: Welcome to episode 16 of the Analytics FC podcast with myself, Tom Warville. Uh, Joining me today is Sam Gregory. Sam, how are you? Good. Good. Cool. Uh, Also, we've got Ben Torveney. Ben? Hello. Hey. And finally, uh, last but not least, Bobby Gardner as well. Hey, Bobby. Oh. So last episode, myself and Sam spoke to Michael Cayley for an expected goals edition of the podcast, which I think went down quite well. Um, this time around we're going to have another roundtable uh, with uh, Sam, Ben and Bobby just to talk about a few of the sort of key themes uh, currently in uh, analytics. Um, so to start off we're going to shamelessly plug some of the work that we've been doing recently. Uh, Sam recently posted uh, an article with a model by going by the name of Pep um, on the Analytics FC blog just last week. So we're going to discuss that a bit more. Um, discuss more in depth about sort of analytics and fan tension, and whether sort of analytics takes away from being a you know a true footballing fan, uh, as it were. Then we're going to go more uh, in detail in terms of what shouldn't we use analytics for. So you know, can it actually be used currently, or maybe even in the future um, to quantify defenders, keepers, midfielders? Um, going to talk a bit about Jamie Vardy and his um, miraculous scoring run for Leicester this season. Um, finally, we're going to talk about the MLS playoffs, uh, whether analytics works in, in the sort of playoff format, uh, and then finally take some questions from Twitter as well. Um, so why don't we start off talking about your latest article, Sam, Pep?
1: Yeah, so we talked a lot about expected goals last week, and one thing we said that I think the next step is, is working towards a not shot space expected goals model. So I built like a really, really simple one. And called it Pep because we started I mean, everything now, so it, it basically just looked at, given a pass into the danger zone, what's the probability that that pass is first off going to turn into a shot, and second off going to turn into a goal from that position where the shot is taken, and I mean it was, it's not super in depth. Like the expected goal model I used is way simpler than what Kaylee would use. Or anyone else, but it was just sort of like a jumping off spot. And uh, I'm writing about a, a bit more about it in the coming weeks with another piece coming out probably sometime this week on it. So yeah, it was got a really good response, and I was happy with like the the general conversation it started. I think. And the follow up piece is going to be focused on Burnley. Or yeah, cool. So oh. Burnley was like the big outlier. They had the sixth highest PEP in the Premier League. And the top five above them, I think, were City, Arsenal, Chelsea, Liverpool, and Manchester United. And then right below them was Everton, Tottenham, Southampton. So it was sort of weird to see Burnley in there. So I've looked into that a little more, and we'll have something on that coming out soon. Sounds good. Um, and sort of in general,
0: myself and, well, Bobby sort of rather humorously started looking at uh, GG Plot in the last week. GG Plot, for you uh, people that don't know what it is, is a package in R – uh, which essentially allows you to uh, create charts and graphs of all different sh- types uh, within R. So it means you can sort of have easy access to your data. It's a bit clunkier than say Excel because you've actually got to type out and code the the uh, you know the graphs. But it looks a lot better. Um, it's a lot easier to sort of filter through data and plot things quicker in R. Um, there are you know a multitude of reasons why it's just a lot better than using say Excel and maybe even Tableau for a certain few plots as well. So Um, I started off sort of looking at a few things with some Bundesliga data. So I was looking at some, I think it's Wego de Position, um, which essentially means uh, sort of position game uh, is the direct translation. And it's the sort of stuff that Pep Guardiola employs at uh, Bayern Munich. Essentially, you're trying to dominate certain areas on the pitch. Um, And the main sort of chart that I put out was one of Philipp Lahm's passes. Um, And from reading Pep Confidential, you sort of know that Guardiola tries to get his players to pass in these sort of half spaces just in front of the box, just to the side. And you can see from sort of Alarm's passing, even though he's played in a couple of positions last season, mainly sort of uh, right-back, defensive midfielder, sort of a number six, and then maybe a bit further forward uh, on the right-hand side. But you can see those sort of pass origins and uh, where the passes go to are in that sort of half-space area uh, in front of the back. So in terms of showing... Uh, where those passes go to so I thought it was quite something uh, quite interesting another one that I um, produced was a comparison of Manuel Neuer's touches uh, and those of Roman Weidenfeller which again is just like a very basic thing to show you where the passes have been taken from uh, and there was one crazy outlier on noise graph, which was I think just past the halfway line. um Obviously, in terms of what they're useful for, it's mainly just to like you know show people these are the passes uh There's not much more you can really do without without going deeper, but I just thought in terms of actually visualizing things rather than answering some questions, they are just quite fun, quite interesting um Bobby, you've been looking more generally at Chelsea recently?
2: um yeah, I mean, I only downloaded R for the first time. Last Wednesday, so I, I'm, a, I'm a huge noob compared to compared to you guys. But I'm trying to compare Chelsea to the equivalent fixtures from last season, and um, then I might do an article on this. It kind of depends um, because with Chelsea, you've got all the hypotheses. Like, have they gotten found out? Are they just really, really tired? Um, or Are they all feminists? So um, yeah, I'm just trying to have a look into that using GG plot for an article for the first time. But it's it's quite fun. I feel super nerdy. And I like
0: it. Ben, have you been working on anything recently or any stuff you want to plug?
3: Um, not hugely, uh, or not anything I want to plug, at least, just yet. Um, but, yeah, hopefully should have some things coming up soon. Cool,
0: <sighs> Sounds good. Um, so moving away from that, more to actually a proper discussion. Um, one of the things that we've been sort of thinking about speaking about for a while and we probably all have this at times when we're watching football, is the tension between, like, analytics and being an actual fan. So I think when we all first met in the pub a few months ago, there was that thing where, you know, you sort of think that a few quite nerdy things come up when you're watching football and you're joking around about, like, oh, that shot was only of so-and-so expected goals or, you know. When you start analysing the game in sort of a jokey way, but equally, it definitely takes away from the fun at times, or it can do, uh you know depending on how like analytically you want to get when watching football so just interested to hear your guys thoughts about what it's like from seeing the seeing the game from this side versus
1: you know being a fan that you were when you were younger or you know a couple of years back yeah well i was talking about this with ben the other day and i said i think i probably got into analytics two and a bit years ago maybe a little less than two years ago and i think in general i like things i like being and approaching football from the analytics side more than Football before, but there are a lot of things that I do like enjoy less and I was talking to you about um I think John O'Shea who used to be one of my favorite players. I love John O'Shea I still love John O'Shea, and I remember one season he scored with eighty percent of his shots, which is probably unsustainable, but I used to think this was like the greatest thing ever and it helped that he was scoring against Liverpool and Arsenal and he was scoring all these big big goals and that's the kind of thing that I think like back then I loved and I still love him for that but I think I would find it harder to like someone who like, I know is shit now from the numbers side or from whatever and that is kind of sad that like, it requires a player to have good underlying numbers for me to like him as much as I used to which I kind of miss about pre-analytics football Yeah,
3: I mean I think similarly, like, I think for me it's been like, a net positive but then you do get some stuff like I was watching um, Middlesbrough play Man United uh, last week, and you know I remember there was a bit where Downing was running along and he took a shot from quite far out, and I was just, you know, it went quite close. And you know, pre kind of looking at the numbers and things, I think you'd kind of think, oh, that was nearly a goal. But then once you kind of looked at it more, it's kind of a lot easier to look at it and think, oh, he shouldn't have shot from there. There were a few passes
2: on, and so I think there's some things that, you know, you do get less excited about. I think on a fundamental level, it probably doesn't change that much in the sense that, like, when you're watching one individual game, if you're at the game, it doesn't change how you watch it because, probably, because of like, any notion of sample size. But I do think, it, especially the long shots thing, like, not just when I'm watching football, but when I'm playing football, um, like, in my uni team or whatever, uh, the captain might say, like, oh, let's just have shots, let's just pop shots. they like, you can't win the raffle unless you buy a ticket. And it's like, yeah, but not all tickets are equal, are they? Like, if I'm popping shows from 40 yards, it's probably not clever. But yeah, I agree with Ben. It's probably a net positive with some some negatives.
1: I think also it might just have to do with, like, yeah. growing up. That now as a 22-year-old, I care less about, like, the, my life doesn't rest on whether Manchester United wins or not this weekend, whereas, like, I probably cared a lot more when I was 14 and would get way more pissed off when I was 14 and United didn't win. So, I mean, it just it happened around the same time as, like, analytics, but it's just part of a path of getting older. And obviously, I'm sure we have plenty of listeners who are much older than 22 and saying right now, like, you have so much to live for. <laughs> <laughs> so another thing, keeping with the things that ruin analytics or things that analytics ruins – we want to talk about some of the stuff that analytics shouldn't be used for, at least shouldn't be used for yet. And the stuff that always comes up at first is keepers, midfielders, and defenders. So everyone who doesn't score or assist goals, I guess. Do you think that we're like completely lost in these categories, or do you think that we should start... That there is stuff we can do right now that helps us evaluate these guys using just numbers. So, I mean, personally, I think... Um... I think Michael Caley
3: mentioned it as well on the thing on the last one, but uh, keepers. I think I'm just sort of agnostic on keepers. I mean, maybe that's as well because I like if I'm watching them, I don't really have that great intuition on keepers anyway. So I think they're like kind of for me at least, kind of I don't really want to touch them too much. But um, I think there's lots of stuff you can do with defenders and midfielders. You just have to be extra aware of the limitations of what you're doing. So rather than just saying, like, right, this is a number, like, and I don't know, Ashley Williams is a six, like, you can't do that, obviously, but you wouldn't do that with, like, a strike or anything anyway. Um, but yeah, I think there's stuff to do, especially stylistically and descriptively, with the stuff we have. Um, and I think once you, I think, as, like, Michael Cayley said again, <laughs> um, you know, once you've got that kind of descriptive base and you, know what you're doing there, then you can kind of move in other directions.
2: I think with defenders, the the stylistic point is a really big one, because um, there's a whole, like, good defenders never tackle trope. And uh, I don't think that in a lot of the analytics work that we identify the tactical systems enough. So I feel like if we were talking about any sort of defense and said what the typical... Stats output of defenders in a high block looks like, then we can contextualize it way better and look at the team as a unit, maybe like separate individual players. Um, We probably need some overlap with the the tactics community on that. Probably need more work of like um, clustering styles and then looking into that. But yeah, I agree with Ben. I don't think we're completely agnostic on anything other than keepers. But center backs, I think it's easier to identify really good ones, if that makes sense. Like we can look at Hummels and see what Hummels does past the centre-back that makes him amazing. But it's harder for me to say why I think Jolion Lescott's really bad.
1: Yeah, I had a coach who said that if you're if you're defending a player and you jockey him and you make him either make a sideways pass or a backwards pass, then you've done your job, which I don't know how true that is. I mean, I'm sure there's plenty of... Uh, there's plenty of situations where that's not true, but in general, that's something that like we can't quantify yet, or at least we don't have the data for yet. And that's something that defenders do like really well. If you slow down the speed of an attack or force the attacker to make a poor decision or go backwards, then you've probably done your job. But that's not something that's going to come up on the stats sheet after a game whereas a tackle would be and maybe when you tackle someone you've actually let the defender come on to you or you've done something that's not even as good as when you just sit there and force the defender to make a bad decision. I think
0: right. I think part of the problem, sorry Ben, is that how we we fully don't understand like what a good player looks like yet and I think we referenced this on a few podcasts ago essentially like we're still understanding the game and understanding score effects and understanding like playing styles and things like that. And I don't think until we have like a complete um, like overview and, you know, complete knowledge of the game, can we properly quantify defenders more than, you know, even if we were to add in positioning data to say like uh, coordinates of uh, actions or just like counting actions, I still don't know like whether we'd know what to do with that or, you know, who, what players look good and what players look bad just because I don't think we've, you know actually know whether a player is you know positioned correctly or not without uh, you know having this one defender who's perfect and a lot of people use the Maldini example and I think that myth was busted a few weeks ago essentially like he still had a load of tackles per game even into the late years of his career so supposedly that's not even true which is kind of frustrating because we all want to believe in the Maldini makes half a tackle every game sort of myth but um Yeah, I think defenders are interesting, but equally, you know, it's quite quite difficult without factoring loads of other stuff first.
3: So, so I think one of the things with defending, especially, is um, like with attacking, it's easy because you're measuring things that people do: right, do they dribble? Do they shoot? Whatever, but defending is often just about stopping someone else doing something, which is basically what Sam said. But you know, if you're trying to stop someone else doing goals. I think a lot of the stuff, a lot of the best stuff that measures defense, like measures defensive output, um, comes from measuring the opposition. So, like, you know, um, passes per defensive action or opposition pass completion. And so, if you're measuring kind of defensive output based on what someone else is doing, it's much harder to match that to any individual. Which I guess kind of makes sense because defending is like, you know about structure and teamwork perhaps to a greater extent than attacking
2: but I think that's one of the particularly hard things with defending I mean the, these are problems that it's not just analytics that has a problem with quantifying defenders and quantifying centre midfielders I can't imagine that any sort of two people would give the exact same answer or even a slightly similar answer to what they look for on a centre back or a centre mid because a centre mid in a in a 4 4 2 is entirely different to what you want in a 4 3 3 or um, any sort of different system. So I think football in general kind of has a problem with knowing what it's looking for in terms of defenders and midfielders more so than it does with strikers, I guess.
3: Mm. Yeah, I think this is where the descriptive element is quite useful because then rather than saying, rather than your starting question being, is this person good, you know, you might, you, it forces you to narrow it down to, is this person good at doing what I want them to do? Is this person good at doing this specific thing? And does that specific thing help me win? Um, Because if you're just starting out with the question, uh, who's good, then you're kind of answering an unanswerable or just bad question.
1: Yeah. And I think team effects are so much more intertwined with defenders than any other position I mean, if you look last year, Cahill and Terry looked like two very, very good defenders, and this year they look like two pretty poor defenders, and you think, okay, well, what's changed? That's clearly, both of them didn't just suddenly turn into shit defenders overnight. There's clearly some team effect going on there, something that Chelsea is doing differently, something that is affected maybe in the midfield is falling apart, and that's hurting the defenders. Like, There's so many more factors that play into this than just the two individual defenders themselves. The one thing I always worry about with descriptive statistics is the sort of the back, I guess, confirming your own beliefs. So, for example, if you're a coach and you say, Oh, I really want a, uh, like you said, a ball playing center midfielder. And if you go back to the stats and if you tell your midfielder, I want you to play 40 forward passes this game, and you go back to the stats and see, Oh, he played 40 forward passes, check mark, he's doing well. Is it you're almost using the stats to back up what you. Have believe what you previously believe which might not necessarily be the best way to win I mean a famous yeah that's
2: like the um, Yapstam and yeah, Sir Alex Ferguson say, story. Yeah. yeah where I don't know if any listeners don't know basically Sir Alex Ferguson got rid of Yapstam because he was not tackling enough and he assumed that that was because he was coming out of his prime when actually it could be the opposite he could be being more intelligent and anticipating situations before anything I wonder with defenders and midfielders I'm not sure about goalkeepers um, whether you guys trust agnostic metrics more than output stuff. So stuff like, I don't know, Altman's Shapley values, which we don't see, but goal impact rates Sergio Buss gets really highly. Um, do you guys use those often? I think
3: I kind of prefer them a lot more to, um, yeah, for defensive players or midfielders where kind of you're less comfortable using other metrics. I think they're quite a nice complement to that and um, quite a nice complement to kind of the eye test as well. I really want to believe like goal impact is a really useful measure but
0: equally you have the sort of you see the top 25 and then you see these couple of players in lower leagues and it makes you either want to believe a that these are really really you know undervalued talents in lower down divisions or equally these the, you know this is incorrect this is wrong and these players aren't as good as you know we we think or this model thinks that they are if someone was to make a separate model and tweak it slightly that'd be you know really really interesting to see whether two models throw up the same conclusions.
1: Yeah, and I think I think this just gets back to something we should always bring with analytics, but even more so with these agnostic measures is use them as a starting point, is say, okay, this guy who plays in Austria has a really, really high goal impact. Now I'm going to go watch games of this team with this player and without this player and look, okay, what does the team do differently with them? What do they add to the team? What is goal impact picking up? Because maybe it's something that doesn't actually have to do with that player. Maybe it's the... That when he plays in the team, they play a different style, which highlights sort of other players in the team or whatever. But I think it's it's a starting point, right? You say, okay, this guy's got a high goal impact. What's different when he plays and when he doesn't play? And you go to the video or you go to other stats to try and figure out what that is. And I think one thing I appreciate about goal impact, too, is it doesn't claim to be anything other than that. I mean, if you look at the websites or whatever that are talking about goal impact, they explain... Exactly what what we should get out of goal impact, and that it's not saying this is the best player in the world, and this is a player who isn't nearly as good. Like it's an agnostic measure. It's saying this is how the team plays when he's in it. This is how the team plays when he's out of it. And then it asks it's almost asking you to go in and look for more context. So, like, I really dislike Jamie
3: Vardy for mostly like subjective reasons. But I think there is one interesting question with him or players similar to him, I guess. And, like, I'm going to check to make sure I don't come off terrible here. But, um, like, Jamie Vardy, he did come up through, like, the lower leagues, right? Yeah, yeah, he, did. yeah he did. Okay, cool. That's good. Yeah, so <laughs> I think there's one thing that you get here is that I think there's an interesting question of why, why are, like, why do you get these goal scorers that come up through the lower leagues and seem to do well? Um, personally, I think that, like, goal scoring is quite a transferable skill, it seems to me. But, you know, you've had, like, Ricky Lambert, uh, Grant Holt, you've got Andre Gray in the championship. Simeon Jackson, don't forget Simeon Jackson. <laughs> right, okay. Also, but yeah, I think, like, I think it's possible. One idea that I think is worth exploring is the idea that coming up through the lowlies could sort of like act like a filter, I guess. So, um, there's an example. I think I heard Rasmus Ankerson talking about, and I think it's probably in his book. Uh, I think it's called Goldmine, which. I haven't read, full disclosure. But anyway, the idea is if you've got two Olympic sprinters, this example he gave, um, or two sprinters, one ran 100 metres in nine seconds and one ran it in 9.5, like, who's the better sprinter? And so obviously you say, well, it's the nine-second sprinter. Like, obviously he's faster. But then you say, well, actually, the nine-second sprinter has been trained since he was three years old to go as fast as he can with time for five seconds sprinter has just taught himself and his techniques all weird. Um, and he's kind of like this unpolished diamond. And I think essentially with strikers that come through the lower leagues, maybe there's that going on, right? Like they've been unpolished, they're unpolished. And because they've still managed to do it, then it means that once they do break into these good clubs, they're kind of, you know, able to shoot up much quicker, if that makes sense. Sorry, that was really poorly. No, I like that idea because essentially
0: you're essentially saying it's more as coaching, right?
3: Right, exactly. It's, it's a way, like, do you look for um, talented players that are really, really obviously talented and going to be amazing? I mean, unless you're like Chelsea or someone, you probably can't afford to do that. Or do you look for these players that kind of might be really good? Um, and I think that's one way that, the, that they can be identified more easily, especially because like, goal scoring, like the stats on that are really easy. Like, you could just look through a filter of like, the non-league clubs and there's still like, decent records of who scored goals. Um, it I, uh, makes
2: sense. Yeah, it's, again. The, like, it's the footballing version of Oxbridge um, comparing your A-level results to what school you went to. So, it, it, yeah, it does make complete sense, I think. And it yeah. is weird now that I think about it, how many of them are strikers that have gone through. The only non striker I can think of is Mikhail Antonio. I don't know if we can even count them as a breakthrough. Chris because Smalling. Oh yeah, Smalling, yeah, yeah.
3: of
2: course. <laughs> um
3: yeah, I think I mean as well, it's especially interesting if they're players that were at kind of Premier League academies dropped down and then came back up, or whether they're players that have, you know, never been in that. Um, situation, But yeah, I think the fact that a lot of are strikers are probably just to do with, like, identification, like, it's a lot easier just to, like, goals are a lot easier to track, just because they're all recorded.
0: Equally, like, I've got quite a funny example, but there's this guy who's playing non-league football, and he's scored, I think he's scored 46 goals already this season. Uh, his name's Ashley Flynn. And, like, he's obviously, like Ben, you're saying, it's easy to track. That sticks out really, really obviously. You know, he's got a good scoring record. He's playing in a league that's obviously not good enough for his talent, so he should be in a higher league. Uh, and quite a few other teams have tried to come in for him. Uh, like, you know, it's more like conference sides, League Two sides, potentially. But he hasn't been able to move sides yet because he's got a driving van and therefore can't literally move sides. so you have this like barrier to entry on these players where you just literally, you know, you can't move them for whatever reason yet you drive in bands or things that we wouldn't even expect at that level, such low down that just, you know, stop players from moving to these higher leagues, you know, injuries at that level, you're not, you know, you could have a player who's scoring, you know, 30 goals a season, but as soon as they get injured, they probably don't have as, you know, good access to physios and you know the you know the correct coaching and a rehabilitation plan if it's a you know a bad injury to get back to the level that they were at before so i think that you're right in the fact that there's probably loads of people in you know non league football that either you know have the talent or just potentially don't have the drive to not literally <laughs> but don't have the drive <laughs> to play you know professional football because th- they see it as like something fun and it's like they don't want to have to have the
1: four- five-day-a-week commitment that professional footballers do have. I think that's sort of what Ben's saying, though. Like, If you can play well on a team that doesn't have a lot of resources, you're probably not playing with good players, and you're not putting in the same hours that these pro guys are, if you can still excel at that level, then if you get all of those advantages, if you start playing with, say, championship-level players instead of 10th-division-level players, then you're going to be like, you're, you have a lot more gains to make by moving up to that level versus a guy who's been playing with, a team's uh, championship or a Premier League team's academy. Ever since he was ten years old, and has grown up in like a super professional environment versus this guy who's played amateur football and has been really, really good.
0: I'd also argue that striker is probably one of the easier positions to play because if you look at, say, uh, a couple of examples, take um, Olivier Giroud for Arsenal. I still, I like Giroud, and I don't think he's world class, but equally, I do think that you could get any other handful of sort of average strikers. And I might have mentioned this before, Sam. And essentially, I think that the, the chances that Arsenal create and the way that they have players like Mesut Ozil and Santi Cazorla who make other players better, I think that position at Arsenal is a lot easier to play than, say, at other teams like Chelsea, where they're far, far more dependent on Diego Costa for um, goals and chance creation and stuff like that than Arsenal are. Um, and secondly, you look in leagues like, say, uh, MLS, for example, and you have Orlando City, whose top goal scorer this season was Kyle Larin, who is a Canadian national team player. Woo, Sam. Um, and he's, you know, he scored, I think he scored 12, 13 goals this season. So in the debut season, that's fantastic. But he's been, you know, fed off chances where he's got Kakao on his team and he's been scoring, I think he scored above his expected goals, according to. Uh, data from American soccer analysis. So it obviously shows, you know, he's a good player, yes. Um, I'm probably discounting the fact that he's Canadian. But equally, he's playing in a team where, you know, the chances that he's being offered are quite easy to score. And he's probably, you know, getting a lot more goals than he would get in another team, say, I don't know, uh, Houston or Colorado, who don't score, you know, as freely, potentially, or don't create as good chances as uh, an Orlando team with Kaka in it.
3: But I think I think that's exactly what we're saying, right? You've got to take into account the context in which they're playing. So, like, if you have, if you're play, like, like I feel like, obviously, playing striker for Arsenal is probably you're probably going to get more chances than playing it for like Fleetwood Town. Um, but yeah, I mean, I kind of feel like that, if anything, backs up the the point
0: we were making. So going back to Jamie Vardy. Does that mean that he's like benefiting from good chances in this lesser side or is genuinely a good striker?
2: Well, his his expected goals are um better than I'm willing to admit. I don't like Jamie Vardy saying that. It's super cool he scored 8 goals in a Premier League game. He's converting at an unsustainable rate. And it's kind of been a shot in the foot for analytics cuz like um Mark Thompson set all that sensible stats account and like the first thing he said, which is fine, which is what I've said in, in an article, um, but you max it, is Jamie Vardy will probably cool off. But the problem we have is none of us know when. I don't think I've seen anything on like what sort of curvature there is to a striker's conversion rate cooling off. I know Costa kept it up for about half a season last season and then cooled off a little bit. But um, what do we really know about how good a striker is? There's the whole Harry Kane confidence thing. But I do think there's something there, right? Like what Jamie Vardy if he's getting like a 0.5 expected goals chance, how much more likely is he to score it, given he scored his last 0.5 expected goals chance? That's not necessarily confidence, but there might be an intangible there to do with finishing. So, um, that's a bit of a weird answer to your question, but Jamie Vardy's probably better than we think he is, but he's also not the nicest man.
1: I I wrote about this a while back, about sort of how intangibles work their way into stats, and how we can actually look for intangibles, or whether they exist. And I think with the whole confidence narrative with Jamie Vardy, I mean, he probably is super confident right now. He probably feels a lot better than he did like 15 weeks ago or 10 weeks ago before the season started. But that being said, I mean, we've never seen a player continue with the scoring rate for an extended period of time, maybe other than Bastos last year. But I don't think this is going to be something that continues all season. And when it drops off, his confidence, or quote-unquote confidence, will also probably drop off. And I think when it's something that you can't control, and I don't think we've seen a player who can control their confidence or whatever you want to call that, then it's not really worth taking into account because it's just something random that comes with these random streaks.
2: But are the streaks random if there is a confidence in like what oh, if The point, was, the point if is, you is if, if you uh, yeah,
3: if you if it's something you can't control anyway, yeah, and like,
2: oh, I see what you mean. Yeah, my 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 assumption on it being something useful would be that you could affect it, right? Like, if I could quantify um, some sort of confidence intangible, and then as a coach, I could try and figure out like how to simulate a Vardy confidence thing onto my Baffert and Gomez It looks like the complete carbon opposite at the moment. Um, but yeah, I see what you mean. If we if we couldn't affect it. I suppose. But isn't that what coaching and man management is, I guess, in a way, trying to simulate the psychological intangible? Yeah, Yeah. but if if there's,
1: I mean, if Ranieri can keep doing whatever he's doing and somehow extend Vardy's quote-unquote confidence streak for the rest of the season and he keeps scoring at this conversion rate, then sure. But, like, we haven't seen any evidence that any coach has that much sort of control over their players, that they can extend a... a conversion rate streak like this throughout an entire season so yeah the first round playoffs happened in uh,
0: mls this week so dc advanced beating new england 2-1 uh seattle advanced also beating uh, the la galaxy 3-2 montreal beat toronto 3-0 and portland beat sporting kansas city in a thrilling 7-6 penalty shootout after a 2-2 draw so really guys obviously not you ben or bobby really watched mls at all um the discussion was more going to be around, you know, how useful do we think analytics is in football, uh, you know, in, a, in playoffs or in say a knockout tournament like the champions league. Cause we know we've all heard before the sort of saying that, uh, Billy Bean supposedly said that his, you know, shit doesn't work in the playoffs in terms of meaning, you know, the use of stats and analytics in a small sample size tournament isn't as effective as it is in a long 162 game, uh, professional season. Um, so I guess there are, you know, obvious advantages to using analytics in match preparation, uh, things like that. But you know, what do you guys think? Maybe not MLS, but more say, I don't know, the World Cup. Um, where do you think you know you get the advantages from using data and numbers, even in these small sample size tournaments?
1: I think there is a big difference between football and other sports in this. I mean, Billy Bean was talking about baseball. If you look at the baseball playoffs and how they've gone this year, they've been pretty random. I mean. The Blue Jays were by far the best team in baseball this year, and they are not in the world or weren't in the World Series. KC won. Who, I mean, we're a decent team, but probably not the best team in baseball. Whereas, I think if you look back at Champions League finals or Champions League even semifinals for the last couple of years, I mean, last year we had Juve, Barca, uh, Bayern Munich, and Real Madrid, and it's hard to argue those weren't the four best teams in Europe last year. And if you look at even Champions League finals, for the most part, they've gone the way you would probably expect them to go over the past five years. I mean, look back. Barca over Juve, that's probably what you would have guessed. Uh, the year before that, Real Madrid over Atleti, probably would have guessed. Bayern over Dortmund, probably what you would have guessed. The only weird one would be that Chelsea over Bayern won. But I think there's a lot more sort of consistency at the highest levels between actually on actually impacting an individual game than there is in other American sports like baseball or like hockey, once you get into the
2: playoffs. And also, if you take the principles learned from larger sample size analytics, something like sub-effects, so you're 1-0 down in a playoff final in MLS, not the MLS, MLS, and um, you decide to bring on a striker in the 65th minute, that's clever in an analytic sense. And that may help, it may not help, but um, that's it working on a granular level, right?
3: Yeah, I mean, just because, like, the signal-to-noise ratio is way bigger doesn't mean you can't, you know, have the right process, even if it's unlucky, you know? Like, you can do things wrong and still win, or you can do everything right and still lose. But that doesn't mean you shouldn't try to do things right, you know? Like, having, a having like, an extra 5% chance of winning isn't maybe... Um, like, that's maybe not going to affect your outcome hugely, but it's better to have it than not have it. Um, so yeah, so maybe Billy Bean stuff doesn't have as big an effect in the playoffs, but like it's still better to do than not do.
2: And also it depends what you think analytics is, because if you've got someone live coding the first half of a game, um, getting all the X and Y coordinates of every pass, and then you went into GG pot and did what I managed to learn to do, after a week of, of playing with it far too much, is plot all the passes, and then you can see oh, so, oh look, our right back is allowing way too many passes in front of him. That's something you could potentially do at half-time. And you might also be able to do that just from watching the game. Um, I don't know if you call it analytics, but it's, it's using data efficiently on a one-game basis. There's, um... There's that Saturdays on Couch stats one piece, right, where he is like, this is what I would do if I was a... Um, uh, an analyst, and that's, that's amazing
3: on a one-game level. Yeah, I think as well on a one-game level, there's um, the piece by Ollie Gage on his website. Maybe you could link it to the in the yep. um, I got you or done. something. <laughs> yeah, but um, yeah, exactly going on that, and it's uh, a situation in which they're going into like a cup final game, and they're the underdogs, and it's how can they use the data and the video analysis to you know, maximise their edge to maximise the probability of winning. Um and even then you might still be relying on some luck. But it's a good way of I think it really well illustrates the kind of correct mentality to have when you're approaching this and understanding the limitations of what you're what you can do and what you should be trying to do. And what people actually do, do in clubs. I think more so in general
0: it's like, you know, if you're doing smart thing during the season, there's no reason why that can't work in the playoffs. It just means that there's Likely to be like you know, more more variance in the results. So, hmm. taking another baseball reference, the fact that sort of the Pittsburgh Pirates decided to do a massive amount of defensive shifting uh, in the I think it was the 2013 season um, doesn't mean that that doesn't like you know it doesn't stop when they make the playoffs. It just means
1: that in the playoffs it's less likely to work because there's fewer
0: games for it to work over.
1: I I think there's also more man management decisions you can make on a in a one-game basis in football than in other sports. If you look at baseball, you can make, I mean, maybe you take a pitcher out the smart, at a smart time during the game, but even that's not going to make nearly as big a difference, I think, if in football you notice halfway through the game that the other team's left back is really bad, so you switch your left midfield over to the right side so we can take them on a couple more times. Something like that, I think, has way more potential to make a big difference in a football game than it does in baseball.
3: Yeah. Yeah, no, I'd agree with that. I think, but I think as well, like people do that on a one-game basis during the season too. Like, I think, although there are some contextual differences that may affect how teams play in the playoffs um, slightly. Like, they might play more conservatively when they're when they've got a lead or something. Like, the actual structure of the game hasn't finished. Right, the rules of the game are essentially the same. Still got a bunch of people kicking a ball, and so the reasons why you should use like the analytical techniques, haven't changed at all just because you're looking at this different subset. Literally all you're doing is just changing the size of the subset that you're looking at in terms of results. Um, You know, Billy Bean shit doesn't work in the playoffs only if you're expecting something completely wrong from it.
0: So now uh, our usual segment where we take some questions from Twitter. Um, I've sort of assigned a question to each of Um, our... uh... Guests, I know you're all happy with your questions. Um,
2: well, firstly, Bobby, what's wrong with Chelsea this week? Um, they're, they're all raging feminists. Modern, Wollstonecrafts. that's a, that's a, my full answer.
0: Cool. My question this week is, Wayne Rooney, uh, is he at the end of his age curve, what's happening with him? I think this was off the bat of uh, a piece by John Byrne Murdoch for the FT, essentially comparing Rooney... Uh, and Raoul's sort of age curves and minutes, I think. Um, So I did a bit of sort of research prior to the podcast about this, just looking at sort of the minutes that Rooney's played, purely because he's played a phenomenal amount for his age. Um, So Wayne Rooney's currently played about 44,000 minutes, um, which roughly equates to about 35 full games um, every single year for the past 14 years, so since he was 16 years old, which is like a crazy, crazy amount for a footballer. So I looked at a few other Manchester United strikers who've played uh you know quite a lot of minutes for the team. Um so Van Nisselroy, he retired at thirty-five, thirty-six, he played a total of forty thousand minutes. Uh Ole Gunnar Solskjaer retired about thirty five, I think. He played twenty three thousand total career minutes. Uh Louis re- retired at thirty six. Uh he had a total of twenty three thousand career minutes. Uh Robin Van Persie, who's thirty two years old, that's two years old uh two years older than Wayne Rooney. Um, has only played thirty-two thousand career minutes, so that's twelve thousand less than Rooney's forty-four thousand. So, Rooney, like, it's really hard for us to keep expecting him to play at such a high level purely because he's played so many games since he was a really, you know, really young age. Um, and I think that if you'd uh, started that sort of age curve of Rooney at eighteen or you know twenty, like most of the young young players, you know, start playing big minutes now, um, he wouldn't be playing at the levels he is purely because he'd have more, you know, you know, more um, <clears throat> minutes in his legs, as it were. So I think Rooney's getting quite a bit of harsh treatment purely because he's, you know, he's playing a lot more minutes, he's quite an active player on the field, so I hate to bring up distance run, but he's probably run, you know, a good 10k a game versus, say, Ronaldo, who's played uh, forty-nine thousand minutes, he's roughly the same age, both thirty years old. Um, But I reckon Ronaldo's not moved, you know, as far or whatever. So it's it's difficult to compare. um, But I just think Rooney's getting quite harsh treatment. He's played a lot of minutes, and maybe it's time for him to sort of, yeah, potentially look for a move abroad at the end of this season. Or it's up to Van Gaal to play him in a position that means that he's, you know, I still think he can add merits to that side. It's just where you know where he can fit in, which adds value to this, you know.
2: Where, Where would you where would you play him? Rooney doesn't actually work anyway. I'm not sure he works as a 10 or as a centre mid. And I'm saying this from a complete idiot point of view because from the, at the beginning of the season I said he would score 30 goals. And I stood by that until about the sixth week. Do you just phase him out? Is it like a Gerard situation where your talisman becomes your greatest burden? Or I don't know.
1: I think he would have made sense at centre midfield before we had Schweinsteiger and Schneiderlin as well. But now there's no room in there for him. He'd probably be fifth in the depth chart behind those two Carrick and Herrera so I yeah I agree I don't know where you play him I think he needs some time on the bench
3: just like a big game of whack-a-mole it's like play him at striker it's like oh no should be playing at 10 play him at 10 oh no he should be playing at striker <laughs> play him there again oh no he should be playing on the wing it's like it's ridiculous he's just not been very good and that's okay we're judging him in the context of what like a 30 year old whereas when what Sam said uh, not Sam Tom said Maybe we should be judging him in the context of something older just because of the
0: mileage he's got. So Sam, there's a question here. Why does Sam think Coutinho is worth a damn? Do you want to explain that?
1: Yeah, so I'm almost certain this is Mo. I'm pretty sure, yeah, it's definitely Mo. And uh, I really like, I find Coutinho, first off, is a really fun player to watch. He tries stuff, he makes stuff happen. I mean, he scored those two great goals against Chelsea at the weekend. But he also, he's on a team that is struggling in an attacking sense. I mean, they've only scored something like, I think, 11 goals this year in the Premier League. And he takes shots. He makes stuff happen. I mean, he's not. he does take shots from more positions. But I think he's. there's something worth saying just in the fact he's a fun player to watch. But also, he is making things happen even when things aren't going Liverpool's way. I think it was the Europa League game last week where they took him off against Ruben Kazan after he had six shots in the first 60 minutes. And I just felt like... This is a guy who's making more offense than anyone else in your team right now. You need a goal. Keep him on. I mean, sure, he might waste the ball sometimes, but he's. I think he's a really good player. And the other thing I'd say is that back when they had Sturridge and Suarez in that ridiculous 13-14 year, he was probably their best midfielder, and he was racking up the assists for both those guys. So I think on a good team with two really good strikers, he, or even just one really good striker, he would have the potential to be a really, really good player.
2: I think the Coutinho needs to be um, Douglas Costa and just put it left wing, up on the right, and they just you know put him in a one-on-one over and over and over again. Because I think that um, his passing is all right. It's not great. His dribbling is amazing. His dribbling is undoubtedly his best quality. Uh, he gets dragged back, I think, by the lack of build-up play behind him. And So it, it kind of profiles like an eight. If you look at his passing, a lot of it is deep. But I think it should be turned into a left-wing personally.
0: So the last question this week is from uh, Jake Cohen from Twitter, essentially saying, uh, following on from Dan Altman's work on um, players as capital assets, uh, what are your thoughts on quantified performance in sort of monetary terms?
3: So, I mean, I'm obviously less experienced as like a businessman or an economist than either Jake Cohen or Dan Altman. So I think whatever I say on this, it's got to come with a bit of uncertainty. But I think... Yeah, like I think it's it's quite interesting and I think there is value to it, right? So if you can say, well, buying this player is going to lead to, you know, got a 95% chance that it'll um, be this valuable to us. That's a good way to contextualize your spending um, and contextualize your resources, right? Like where, how much money you're putting into which resources. Um, and obviously there are practical issues to that. I think one of my worries about that is kind of balancing the different perspectives within an organisation. So I I think with a lot of businesses, you know, they're looking at things from a business perspective almost exclusively, whereas with a club, you're looking at things from both a business perspective and increasingly a business perspective, but also just from, like, a sporting perspective. So although... You want to kind of look at it purely in kind of these quantified terms. I think you still need to balance that and value, well, what what all the fans think. Like, this may not make sense entirely economically, but that's offset by the fact that, you know, the fans love it all. It'll lead to immediate success, which can then be used kind of as a springboard for other success. Does that make sense? Like, I think... My my main worry is just that you don't want to kind of over overvalue one each one of those perspectives between the business and the economic one.
0: I think that makes sense. I think that there's quite a few. I think there's quite a few ways that you can sort of look at this thing in terms of you know uh, marketing spend and player uh, shirt sales, and then equally like value on the pitch in terms of. Uh, you know, I quite like the MLS thing where um, <clears throat> you can look at how much they're costing your salary cap, and then equally, um, you know, how much value are we of that are we getting on the field, or how much value of that is, is in the squad and not on the treatment table? You know, how many times are they going to be available to the to the boss, uh, to the coach? Even, um, I think in terms of capital assets, I'm nowhere near uh, qualified enough to sort of comment or expand on that theory, but I think it's quite an, an interesting thing. And the Yaya Torah example that Dan used was um, really, really interesting. I'll drop a link mm. uh, in the um, description below.
3: Yeah, I mean, as well, if we're talking about um, kind of looking at things in terms of performance in monetary terms, you know, there's obviously lots of different perspectives you have to look at. I mean, if you look at Falcao's transfer to Man United, you look at that in terms of actual output on the pitch and you think well actually they're probably a bit like like he didn't offer that much to the team on the pitch but if you take into account the fact that his agent is Mendes and that you know paying for Falcao there might lead to benefits elsewhere with De Gea or Martial or whatever um so I think that kind of starts to make more sense or you know marketing as well
0: I think there's definitely a strategy side of transfers that we don't sort of see or hear about quite often, especially for future recommend you know future um, considerations of transfers. I mentioned it previously about uh, Martial and sort of his agency and how United probably overpaid for uh, first refusal on a bunch of other targets in the future. It's probably the same with say um, you know you work repeatedly with the same agents so that you get good deals or. Uh, you know, they offer you a, less of a discount in terms of a fee for that agent because you are, you know, easy, repeated business for them, things like that. So I think the the sort of business uh, economic side of football I haven't really read much about, but there's definitely scope there for, you know, we're talking about analytics or smart ways of doing things on the pitch. There's definitely scope, probably more so to do smart things like that off it as well.
3: Mm, yeah, no, I'd agree with that entirely. Um yeah, I think transfers are particularly hard to evaluate, especially in monetary terms because, you know, what we see is just the tip of the iceberg. We don't even get like that good reporting on what fees there are, um, never mind agencies and, you know, relationships between people doing the deals.
0: Absolutely, which is why I find MLS quite interestingly because you have this transparency in you know not not necessarily fees but you have some degree of transparency in terms of salaries and they're not the final figure they're not the 100% correct figure but you at least have some figure that's not been thrown around you know in the newspaper that you can't see that you know it's correct or not so i i'm i'm awful i mean it would be far far more interesting to study sort of the economic side of things of the premier league had you have have you had sorry player wages or you know staff wages things like that um but, you know, as long as that data is remained hidden and for obvious reasons, because these are uh, private companies, then that's probably not going to happen.
3: In fairness, I think we could kind of... It's like um, Sam's piece on intangibles. I mean, it's obviously harder, but I think a lot of these off-pitch... I mean, at least if you're looking at performance, these off-pitch things can work their way into performance. Like, you might be... It might be better if you could see, all right, how good is their, you know, I don't know, scouting department... But then you can kind of approximate that because it will have an effect on the pitch. Like I don't need to know in quantified terms how good the medical department is because the teams with better medical departments will probably do slightly better, I guess, maybe, if that makes sense.
0: In terms of so well, in terms of you've got a better medical department, therefore your like return time is less than that of a team that has less money in the medical department. Is that what you mean?
3: Yeah. So I mean maybe like I mean maybe medical department's a bad example, but it's just the idea that like um like if these things matter, then they affect performance and so you can kind of infer their um like which teams are, it comes all as part of which team are good on the pitch. And so if you're measuring which team is good on the pitch, then it, it's still there. It's just kind of hidden beneath a, an extra layer. Um, yeah, so that's a really, really tangential point.
2: I think with um, quantifying players, another big thing is like image rights and um, how marketable a player is. So there's the whole like, conspiracy theory that Galacticos, when Real Madrid buy big players, they want them to be good-looking. It's easier to market them, so you like chuck out Angel Di Maria, who's um, well <laughs> Angel Di Maria, and then, and then you bring in Hames, who um is Harmez, and suddenly you'd imagine that well, I mean, I guess the hypothesis goes that the shirt sales go up or whatever. And so there's a whole other side to transfers that we have no real access to. Like I have no idea how to quantify how marketable Hames is compared to Angel Di Maria. I mean, I know that he might be better better looking, but that's about it. So I think it's really difficult to try and quantify players as capital assets when there's that side of things. Like Rooney's um, £300,000 a week, whatever, that includes his imaging rights, right? It's something like that. So um, there's this whole side that we have no real idea of.
3: Yeah, so it's so hard. It's, it's incredibly hard to separate the, perfor- the performance in monetary terms to other aspects in monetary terms, I think. I
0: think that's a good place to finish on, especially considering Bobby's going to go away now and rate the uh, attractiveness of the Real Madrid first team. (laughs) So that's been episode 16 of the Analytics FC podcast. Thanks, guys, for coming on. Enjoy Champions League. Speak to you soon.